So we're going to focus here. We're going to bring it back to this moment of Jesus' critical, defining moment in his life. And I would like to start by asking us to imagine what it would have been like to be there. If you were in that moment, it says that he was a stone's throw away from the nearest and closest disciples. So you're overhearing him pray. He's calling out to the Lord. It's, it's, it's far, but it's not. And they're overhearing him. What would it have been like to hear him pray? Father, if there's any way we can do this a different way, please, let's. But if not, your will be done not mine. I'm curious what you think, and if you even have any thoughts right now, I'd be curious to hear you share them. What would it have been like to overhear Jesus say that? What would you have thought? What would it have felt like? Would you wonder, like, is he going to go through with it? Is he battling? Like, is he in, like, a tipping point himself? It, it, would you wonder if he has faith? I don't want to do what your will is, Father. I would rather not. Like, what would that have felt like? Does it trigger any thoughts? 100% agree with that, yeah. We can actually identify with a Jesus like that. If he was there in that moment, like, cool, let's do this. I can't identify with that. But if we see someone who's afraid, and if we see someone who's stressed to the point of sweats that are like drops of blood, like, we can identify with that kind of fear, and yet... Not my will, but yours. It's just pivotal. We don't need to answer all the questions, and I don't need everyone to share. That's not the point. I just want us to really put ourselves in that mindset. I think our entire lives can be boiled down to the two questions, what do I want and what does God want? <laughs> right? I want to be married. I want to be successful. I want to go to college. I want to get this degree. I want this something. I want to be healthy. I want to get healed. I want this surgery. I'm like, whatever, right? Just what, what do I want? What does God want? And sometimes they're just like, fine, we get it. They're the same or they're just easy. And sometimes you're like, these are so far apart. And sometimes one feels like it's trumping the other and the other one. And sometimes it feels like my will is just winning out here. But is that okay? I don't know. So this wrestling match by Jesus, this battle of wills that he was going through between being fully human and fully God and like meshed in that decisive moment is like our ultimate question. And it will determine how all those things I just listed play out. I told you that God kind of split out this sermon into a few parts. I was thinking, how cool would it be if someone who was there that day would have written a letter saying, this is how this moment in time applies to every area of life. To husbands, to wives, to the youth, to church, to leadership, to employees and bosses and work, to politics, to it. And as I was doing my study, I realized that 1 Peter 2 through 5 is that. And Peter was there that day. He, in that moment, saw what it meant. And then all he did after that moment was point people back, no matter who they were, back to that moment and say, this is your defining question. This will determine how your life goes. This determines your eternity. This determines the successfulness of your faith, the thriving, the fruit. This, this is the question. And so when I realized this chapters 2 through 5 of 1 Peter, that's when God made me start thinking, we might need to split this up. I don't think I can read chapters 2 through 5 after we study Gethsemane. So that's what we're going in the next couple of weeks. We're going to let Peter... The guy who was there overhearing a stone's throw away, 
show us. Literally, his examples are in marriages, husbands, wives, parents, children, politics, work, youth, um, elders and pastors in church, and spiritual attacks. There's like eight of these categories. And he's like, not my will, but yours be done. The way Christ suffered is the model. It's the paradigm. It's the blueprint. It's how you do all these things. It wasn't just the passion story. It's the only question that matters. And how Jesus wrestled with it is what we need to learn from. So, before we get into Matthew and then Luke, the two uh, eyewitness accounts of the garden, I would like to connect Jesus to where we've been with the will of God. Do you remember we have the pleasure of God, the thalema, the things he would wish that would happen? That's one will that we see in the Bible. There are three words for the will of God in Scripture in Greek. They all get changed to will in English, so it simplifies and confuses things, but we're trying to break them out. So the will of God, thalema, the things he would love to see happen, but clearly the world isn't filled with everything thing just God would love. There's also his plan, the will of God. Prothesis is that Greek word. Like He has a plan that cannot be stopped and that will bring to fulfillment. So Jesus in this moment is like fulfilling the prothesis, the plan of God, right? That question. He's answering correctly. He's letting the wrestling match be won, the battle of wills to determine the plan of God, and it's unstoppable. And then the boule, the specific moments where God comes in and does something. It was God's will that it didn't rain that day, because God stopped rain for serve home, for projects that were on. He intervenes according to our prayers, according to his will. So the pleasure of God, the plan of God, and then the plans, like specific detailed initiations. Jesus is all three wills of God. Before we see him enacting the will of God, he's all three wills of God. He is the pleasure of God. He fully lived out the pleasure of God. Everything that God would love to see a human do, Jesus did. Every way God would love to see a human love others and sacrifice for them and teach them, that was Jesus. The joy he felt, the way he loved kids, the way he elevated women, the way he knocked down hypocrisy, the way he minimized authority versus... Submission. He like leveled the plane. He fully lived out the pleasure of God. He's the full thalema of God. Everywhere he went, every place he went. From people who are fishing to cooking breakfast on the seashore this is, to making wine at the wedding. The pleasure of God. You see him and you see God's pleasure. It's so good. Right? We could spend a whole sermon on that. Just thinking about Jesus as the pleasure of God in human form. But Jesus is also the plan of God. Jesus came at a specific time, born to a specific woman of a specific lineage that was prophesied to a specific amount of years to happen at that specific time under a specific Roman rule so that crucifixion on a tree would be specifically available as a capital punishment technique, implement, torture device, based on the prophecies that prophesied that the Son of Man would be on a tree, lifted up just as the bronze servant read prophecy, the plan. Jesus is the plan of God. He dies the way he says it's going to happen, and then he rises the way he said it was going to happen. He appears in the plan of God. Jesus is the plan of God. He's the Savior. He's salvation. He's everything. He's the one who comes at the end to judge. He didn't come the first time to judge. He came the first time to save. He comes the second time to judge the plan of God. He was in creation. David led us through that. Where are you, David? I lost you. There you are. He led us through that. We'll go back to that. We'll dig deeper into it. Before creation, Jesus was there. In eternity, Jesus is there. King of kings, Lord of lords. Right? The plan. Jesus is the plan, will of God. But he's also the boule, will of God. 
Jesus was the healing the woman who was bleeding. Jesus was bringing the, the son and the daughter back from death. He, he was bringing Lazarus back, initiating. God stepping into a moment saying, on this day, God's about to show up and do something. And it's not just a general thing. It's a specific thing. This person was broken and now they're healed. This person was a sinner and now they're forgiven. Boule, right? All the time. Everything he's doing is both the pleasure of God, it's the plan of God, and it's the determined action. So he's, he's so wonderful. If we spent nothing else time doing on this Sunday morning to just recognize Jesus is the full embodiment of the will of God, it can help us know what the will of God is and look at him and recognize all these facets. It's why we sing and worship so we can like elevate our emotions to appreciate who he is, not to manipulate our emotions, but to give us outlet for things like joy and worship and adoration. We need music. We need it to stir us to feel and to think in words that teach us. That's what this moment does for me. This Gethsemane moment. That's what Jesus, as the will of God, does for us all. So before we read the Matthew 26, if you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to account of the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to just remind us that the reason that the wrestling match is happening here is because Jesus is fully God and fully man. There's the two aspects of his being. The battle of wills between what his flesh would want, what as a man or as a human we would want, but then as God in human form, he knows what God's will is and is striving for that. There are three scriptures that make this super clear, three parts of the Bible from three different books. I just wanted to read them for us to remind us why this battle is even happening. The first one is Hebrews 4.15, and the writer of Hebrews says to all the early Christians, he writes them this letter, and he says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet he was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, right before the throne. Let us draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that means Jesus knows fully what it is to be in anguish, to be fearful, to be hungry, to be betrayed, to be tired, to be joyful, to laugh, to find humor, to love. He fully is us. He in every way can identify with us. And yet, in the ways that all those emotions can be temptations for us, the things that we love, we may love too much. The things that we fear, we may be crushed by. The things that we want, we may put ahead of God. He just did them all right, but he felt them all. So in the garden, he's feeling what you would feel if you knew exactly what was about to happen to you the same way it was about to happen to him. That full dread. It's a fully man. But Philippians 2, 4 through 11 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I mean, he already had it. He's not trying to be God. He is God. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is just as clear as clear can be. Emptied himself of the divine attributes like omnipresence because he became present in one place. He didn't consider like, oh, I should be like God. He was God and became the form of a man born as a baby boy. And the last one is John 10.30. Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. That's it. Fully man, fully God, one with the Father. And in that place, in the garden, it's all coming to a decisive moment. It's the moment that we get our faith from. It's the moment that everything hinged upon Jesus living out the will of God. So there's our foundation. That's why we're talking about this this morning. That's what I want us to have in the back of our mind. Read with me Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. This is written by Matthew. He was one of the disciples, so he was there at the garden. He's not one of the closest three, so he's like the first group that gets stopped over here, and then there's a closer three, and then there's Jesus. Jesus kind of moves away to isolation for prayer, Um, but Matthew was there that day, and this is what he wrote. Matthew 26, verse 36. So this is after the Last Supper, right? And now we're going out to the garden. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Peter, James, and John, the closest three in his inner circle, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So like the agony is like creeping in, the fear, the the sorrow and anxiety is creeping into him. Then he said to them, my soul, like my, my, my guts, my heart, my inside, everything in me is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. I'm so riddled with anguish right now. I feel like I could die just from the feeling inside of me. So please stay here and watch with me. Like, be with me. I need you now at my side. Give me the strength of your friendship and your companionship. And watch with me. Keep watching. So then going a little further, he fell on his face. This is not like a very polite little, I'll sit down. He's falling on his face. That's his physical response to the emotions that are inside of him. Falls on his face and he prays, saying, My Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he prays that one time. Comes back to his disciples. He finds them sleeping. And he says to Peter, again, the one who's going to write this letter, showing what this moment means for all of us. He says to Peter, couldn't you watch with me for just an hour? Watch and pray. And now here he defines why. So that you may not enter into temptation Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's the battle of wills right there, summed up by Jesus. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So your watching and your praying is part of your protection against the flesh that is weak. 
So again, he goes away a second time and he prays, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink of it, your will be done. And again, he came back and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. This is something we're going to see when we read Luke's version. He adds so much beautiful to it. It almost feels now like we should be insulted that the disciples couldn't stay awake. There's a lot more going on here than just this. We're going to see it. But he does come back. He finds them sleeping. Their eyes are heavy. So leaving them, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. He's going back to the Father again, and back to the Father again, and back to the Father. It isn't just sort of like a once, a, once, once and done. It would be nice if we could do this a different way. He's like, please, 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 is there any other way? This is hard. I'm dying from the emotion here of the anticipation of what's about to come, which is my actual torture and death. It's just so profound what's happening in this moment. He's going back to the Father again and again, three times. So, and he finally, he comes back to the disciples and he says to them, there'll be enough time to sleep later. Sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In the gospel accounts, you see that Jesus actually anticipates Judas before Judas gets there. He knew so much of what was coming that he goes up to Judas. It says in Luke, I think, or it might be the one in Mark. We'll see as soon as we read Luke. My memory can't recall. But one of the accounts, um, Judas, it says Judas went up as if to give him a kiss. And Jesus turns to him and said, what, will you betray me with a kiss? They didn't kiss him. And then Jesus, he like knows literally one of his closest friends is about to be determined. He knows how it's going to happen. He knows when it, and he steps into it. So he made his decision, right? Your will, not mine. And he steps into that moment of suffering. We can picture ourselves as the disciples watching and praying. We can, we can picture ourselves with Jesus' little teaching moment there when our flesh is weak. Sometimes our spirit is still willing. We can see in Jesus this paradigm. We can see Jesus going back and forth with the Father. In my mind, it raised some interesting questions, so I'm just going to pose them here. Think about these with me. So, is it okay then to ask for relief from our suffering if Jesus did? It's got to be, right? He suffers in every way, but it's without sin, so everything he does here is okay. <laughs> Do you go back to God and ask, please help? Is it okay? Can you just stop this thing? You can ask. But do you add into there, but God, you're going to know best, and if I've got to go through it, then... You'll take me through. Sometimes we feel like, wow, I should just like have more faith. And it, no, it's okay if you're in agony. And it's okay if you go back to God. You know, in the Bible, every time, anytime something is repeated three times is like a very, very, very important statement. Very, the most important statement. So Jesus does it three times. He's fully agonized. So is it okay to go to God and just say, I don't like this. I want it to stop. Yep. You're not sitting against God when you pray those prayers. It's okay. The second big question that came to me is, can it be God's will for us to suffer? Well, which will are we talking about here? Does it make him happy? No. Is it for the pleasure of God? No. Can it be for the plan of God? Yeah, it can. So then I would say, yes, it can be God's will for us to suffer. And I say, well, can, what about the specific? Does God make us suffer? And in that, which is its own sermon, I would just divide evil from trouble. 
God can bring us trouble. God will never bring us evil. So lots of bad things happen. Some of them are evil, and those are never from God. But sometimes there's trouble. Even like a man born blind or lame, like there can be trouble. That's not evil. That's trouble. God brings trouble sometimes, yes. So is it God's will that we might suffer at times? Depending on how you define it, yes. Does God love suffering? No. That's why it's helpful to split the will of God in different ways. Think about it differently because you find yourself less of that, like, well, I don't know how to answer that question. Because you're trying to make will one thing. That's not how the Bible thinks of it. We have the freedom to look at it scripturally and answer some of those questions for us. So yes, it can be. It was God's will for Jesus to suffer. One of the prophecies about Jesus from Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isn't that such a great prophecy about the Messiah? It was the will of God to crush him, but then he will see his offspring. So after the crushing, there's like a wonderful legacy, and the will of God shall prosper. So this plan is not just, God's not just looking to crush us for our sins, and like he's not just a vengeful God. He, his plan is much bigger than that, and his plan always is for good, works all things for good. So yes, yes, that's what I see, and that's in scripture. Um, another question we could ask is, can our wills, what we want, tempt us to deny God or to defy him? Because that's ultimately the temptation here for Jesus. Will he defy the Father? Or will he deny what he wants? So that's got to be on the table. If it was a guarantee and like easy for Jesus, then he's not like us. And we're in those moments of decision, it's not easy. And can we be tempted to deny God when we know what we should do or we know something is being like called towards us in a certain direction? It's like, nah, this is easier, this is simpler, this is what I want more, this is better, I, I, whatever. Like, it's a denial. That's the temptation. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation because when it comes down to the battle of wills, like there is a chance that we could reject God. We let our will win. And Jesus didn't. His example is what it's like when we don't. And the last question before we turn over to Luke, the, the kind of like ponder, like the big picture here. Could our biggest moments of anguish actually be turning points in our lives for the best things that come after? And I've seen this in other people's lives. I've experienced that when you get to that point where you like can't take it anymore, it's like a breaking point. God takes you through that. And on the other side of that, you didn't realize that was actually a door. It felt like a locked door. When you get through it, it's actually something amazing on the other side, but you feel like you're going to die in the moment. And in a way, you kind of do have to die, but it feels like it's the end of everything, and it's not. It's just the end of that season. It's the end of that decision. It's the end of that battle of wills. It's the end of you and how you think, and the new you will be someone different. Like it, with Jesus, this critical moment, that battle of wills was actually... The, the precipice, the threshold of the good, amazing thing that would come through the resurrection, through salvation, through return, right? It, we usually see the crushing things, we feel the crushing things as if like, well, now all is lost. It actually could be the beginning of the new as the last one dies. Luke 22. I, I want to read this together. 
I love the fact that we have different accounts of Jesus' life because different people notice different things and if you're writing a letter, you're going to remember different things and so you put together a few different letters from a few different people and you collect great information and insight onto the situation. So Luke was not one of the disciples standing there. This is an eyewitness account, but Luke is the historian. Luke, we learn in the book of... Uh, Acts, he, he's writing these thoughts to a, a Roman leader, collecting as a historian all the things that happened to Jesus. So Luke was with Mark, he was with the other disciples, he collected and he writes down from their eyewitness experience what they saw. And so as he's culling their memories, <laughs> he comes with this information in like a, a beautiful way to show different aspects and what stood out to different ones of the disciples from that moment. <clears throat> so I wonder, was this what Mark told him? Or, or which disciple remembered these things to say, this is what that moment was like? So let's just read it together. It's Luke chapter 22, verse 39. I'm going to stop as we go through this to highlight the differences and where they, they help. So it says, as Jesus came out, again from the Last Supper, and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives actually is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It's a garden within this location. And this is backed up by uh, geography and archaeology. And there's a site today that they believe was the Garden of Gethsemane. I was reading a little bit about it this week. It was fascinating to me. So the Mount of Olives is the location. But I love the phrase before that. As was his custom. Jesus was known for being a man of prayer, known for going away and praying. He didn't just wait for the culminating point in his life, the biggest crisis, now I'm going to get on my knees and pray to the Father. He always did this, which is why Judas knew how to find him, because he always did this. But he was a man of faith, a man of prayer, always living out the pleasure of God, always in prayer, always talking with the Father. So he came out <clears throat> from the upper room, went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, right, like his spot, they got to their spot, this garden spot that they loved to pray in, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. There's the prayer. And then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. I like that. It helps me picture, like, how far were they away? Luke is collecting this historical information. It was about a stone's throw away. And he knelt down and he prayed. And there appeared... Oh, sorry. I skipped the line. Knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remember, Matthew said, Father, if it be possible. So, like, is it possible, Lord? Is it your will? Could it be your will to do another thing? He's wrestling with the Father. Remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Now that's an interesting addition. We always talk about the spiritual realm being around us all the time. But we don't often think about how it plays out in practical situations. So what Matthew remembered and saw was Jesus and him praying in agony. But what was happening while Jesus was praying is God was strengthening him to be ready for what was coming. And so I don't know who noticed the angel. I don't know who told it to Luke. I don't know if Jesus shared it later and then they were able to share it with Luke. But there was something going on more than what they could see in that moment. It wasn't just a man kneeling and praying and crying and then being arrested by one of his best friends. God was there answering those prayers. If it be possible, I will strengthen you. Son, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I will bring you comfort and I will bring you what you need to get through this. So God's will was not to remove Jesus from the situation, 
God's will was to give him the strength to get through it. And he did, even in that moment. Angels ministering to this Son of God while he prays. Beautiful, beautiful addition to what we picture is happening in that moment. So now he says, and being in agony, Matthew used softer terminology, sorrowful, troubled. Luke goes to agony. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So was it actually blood? I don't know. Did it look like it? Did it feel like it? Was he that agonized that blood was coming out in his sweat? We're left to kind of wonder about, is it a word play? Is it biological description? But he's fully in agony, praying more and more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came back to the disciples and he found them, here it is, sleeping for sorrow. That is a beautiful phrase to me and helps me not think they're such jerks. Have you ever been so depressed that you're exhausted? I have. Have you ever been so overwhelmed? You're like, I can't take this anymore. I'm like shutting down. I feel myself shutting down right now. It's too much pressure. It's too much. Well, they're in a moment. They just finished a meal and Jesus said, one of you is about to betray me. And then he comes here and he says, get ready. Don't fall into temptation. You hear him praying. Like this, that's the moment if you're ever going to feel the like emotional shutdown systems. It's going to happen then. Because this is probably the moment where you get arrested and killed. Because your false messiah, which the Romans thought were the, the, the political revolutionaries of the day, all of them and all their followers were always just murdered. The government was like, we're just squashing this rebellion. It happened again and again and again. There were so many false messiahs, false pretenders before Jesus. And there's records of them saying, come with me, we're going to be fine. And then the Romans come in and kill them all to a man. No resurrection story, just dead. So like all of that is in their consciousness. Maybe is this the moment? Do we all die tonight? We know later on, Peter takes out a sword. He thinks we might be doing like government takeover now. I don't know. Jesus is king. Like, is this the moment? They were asleep for sorrow. They literally like, could not physically take the pressure of the moment. And it's the middle of the night and they're exhausted and it's dark and they, they had a nice big meal. And they're just seeing their Savior crying and begging. And they're like, I, so it was overwhelming to the point of ex, full exhaust, total exhaustion. We would have been asleep too. Don't blame them, don't judge them. We would have been shutting down as well. So he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So get up, strengthen yourself. And pray. Pray is going to give you, prayer is going to give you your strength. So while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's like he calls him out. He's like walking towards him to give him a kiss. That's the symbol. And he's like, what, are you going to betray a man of a son with a kiss? Do you know what Judas had to do after that? He had to still walk all the way up and kiss Jesus on the cheek because that was the sign to the soldiers of which one it was. So Jesus is like, are you going to kiss me and betray me? And he has to like do a walk of shame those last feet and come all the way up to him and kiss him on the cheek. And then the soldiers come forward. Like, what a moment. And Jesus knew it was coming. He knew it was coming. He knew this whole thing. That's why the agony. That's why the drops of blood. That's why, Father, 
if there's another plan, because what I know is coming is hard. It's no good. It's, it's all the way bad and evil and awful. And, but if it's part of your will, the plan, I'll, I'll walk it. We can do this. You can do this. Please strengthen me. Here's an angel. Here's my spirit. Here's the strength you need. And then Jesus walks through and into that moment. We need to do two things with this. We need to believe and understand what actually happened in that moment. This is not a myth. This is not a fable. This is a historical document that's been preserved for 2,000 years to let us know what went on. And it's not by one person. It's by many collectively corroborating the events of that day. You cannot be a Christian without believing that this is true and this is what happened. So for those of us that have problems with parts of the Bible, it's hard to understand or hard to believe we wrestle, you don't have flexibility on this part. If we don't believe that this happened in this way, then we cannot call ourselves Christians. We can call ourselves seekers. We can call ourselves open. We can call ourselves something. But belief is where we start. And in which case it transforms the whole thing from being like, oh, well, this is a nice Sunday sermon or like uh, something I'll think about, a good thought for the week to like, has gravity to it. It has depth to it. It's, it should make us sad. We should be sad hearing this because it happened to someone who loves us and was willing to die for us. But the second thing that it should do is it should inspire us to say, if Jesus could say that then, I can say that now. If Jesus can be in a harder situation than I'll ever be in, and I know many of our stories, there are truly hard situations that we've been in or are in, and maybe even... Go Nothing is harder than what Jesus went through. It cannot be. A sinless man to take all the sins of the world. You only have your own sins and the sins of your family and friends to deal with. And you don't even own their sins. You're just responsible for your own. So that's the weight that we feel. We need to take this as our model. And that's why these next couple of weeks I want to talk about how does not my will but yours be done transform your marriage. Because if Jesus can do that then and say that then, you can say that now, husbands. You can say that now, wives. How does it transform parenting? Because if Jesus could say that then, moms and dads, you can say that now with my children, with our family, not my will but yours be done. And what will it look like on the other side of that? For you and your job, some of our jobs are blessings and awesome, and some of our jobs are awful. We work with some great people. We might work with some terrible people. If Jesus could say, not my will, but yours be done, how can you stand like Christ in your job and say, all right, God, your will be done here through me? What will our suffering and our submission look like in our lives? This is like the only question that matters in a way, which is why I'm so excited to be looking into it together. So I need you to take a moment now. I'll invite Devin back up. Uh, ushers will distribute community. I need you to think about what this means for you. Over the next weeks, we'll look at jobs, we'll look at politics, we'll look at marriage, we'll look at parenting, we'll look at the young and the old, we'll look at seasons of life, we'll look at spiritual attacks and try to figure out how it applies to all of these. But for this morning, if you can just think, 
If Jesus could say that then, I can say that now. And if that was his turning point, maybe it will be mine as well. I just want us to put ourselves in Christ's shoes in some way. And be like, we're, we're meant to be like him. So therefore, this was his defining moment. And it will be ours as well in all of these areas. So would you take a few minutes now before we go to communion and just bow in prayer? If you could play something for us just as background music for a few minutes. I'd like us to reflect, meditate, pray. Um, just consider what God's saying to you this morning and what you're going to do about it because it does matter.